It's Thursday, August 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As the Delta variant continues to surge across the U.S., we are hearing more stories of children being hospitalized. But are they getting sicker? For the most part, kids that show up to hospitals have milder symptoms, but there are those that do develop pneumonia and other serious effects from COVID. Emily Anthes, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for Kids and the Delta Variant. Next, we have seen an extension on the moratorium on evictions, providing some relief to tenants behind on their rent. But the rent relief program created to help tenants and landlords cover those costs has been slowed down by delays, confusion, and too much paperwork. The program run by the Treasury Department is slated to dole out over $46 billion in payments. To date, they have only sent out about $5 billion. Andrew Ackerman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, one of the most enduring internet pranks and memes has been good old Rick Rowling. Someone sends you a link to something that you have a legitimate interest in seeing, you click it, and boom. Rick Astley's 1987 hit, Never Gonna Give You Up, starts playing. Well now, the official video for that song has hit over 1 billion views on YouTube. Travis Andrews, internet culture reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for this internet prank milestone. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm very worried. I mean, the reality is we have this Delta variant that's surging across this country and in particular states that are under vaccinated. And because of that, you know, it, the virus will find our vulnerable populations. And for now, that represents our kids. Joining us now is Emily Anthes, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Of course. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk a little bit about the Delta variant and children. You know, a lot of this has to do with the numbers game, but Largely and thankfully, for the most part, children are spared the most severe effects of the virus. You know, we've we've known this throughout the entire course of the pandemic so far. But the Delta variant kind of changed a lot of things. We're seeing hospitalizations rise with regards to children. One of the big questions, does it make them sicker, though? We, we really don't know the answer to that. We don't have enough data for it yet. But what are we seeing as far as children going to the hospital more? As you mentioned, there's a lot we don't know, but what is very clear is that Delta is highly contagious. It's about twice as contagious as the original virus, which means that it is spreading quickly through areas of the country with low vaccination rates. And of course, children right now are all unvaccinated. And so what that means is more kids are getting the virus. And when more kids get the virus, more of them need medical attention. There are children's hospitals, especially in the South, that are saying they are seeing more sick kids with COVID now than they have at any prior point of the pandemic. And pediatric hospitalization numbers are also higher than they have been at any previous point of the pandemic. And, you know, want to be clear because we don't want to alarm anybody. These things are happening. Numbers are going up like that. But it is still a small share of children that are developing severe disease and needing to be hospitalized. But understandably, parents are scared, right? Nobody wants their kids to go through that. Nobody wants to go through it themselves. When the kids are going to the hospital, though, what kind of things are we seeing? Some are getting pneumonia, different things like that. As you mentioned, even the kids that are showing up at the hospital doctors are telling me a lot of them have mild symptoms. They're showing up with things that seem like colds, you know, runny noses, congestion, or maybe things that seem like the flu. Sometimes they are vomiting or have diarrhea. And a lot of those kids are tested and then sent back home to recover where they do recover. 
but a small proportion of kids are showing up with pneumonia or shortness of breath or some sort of trouble breathing respiratory distress. And that small percentage of kids are being admitted. There are fairly effective treatments, so they're sometimes being treated with oxygen or steroids or antiviral drugs. But some of these kids are quite sick. Back to that, the big question that we don't know, obviously, but we can explore a little further. Are they getting sicker? We have some data, mostly from adults, that say it could cause, the Delta variant could cause some more severe disease. We don't know in children yet, but if you can help explain some of that, at least. Yeah, so there are a handful of studies and really still only a few that suggest that adults who get Delta are somewhat more likely to be hospitalized or to end up in the ICU or to require oxygen. Some of these studies haven't been published or or peer-reviewed yet, so the data is a bit preliminary. And most of these studies have included few or no children. And we know that in other ways the virus does affect children differently than adults. So the jury is sort of still out right now on whether Delta is making children sicker than other variants might. There's reason to think that could be possible, but we really need to wait for the data, which, which we don't have yet. One of the other things that's happening right now is kind of a dual surge, some people call it. So for the early parts of the pandemic, right, everybody was on lockdowns, social distancing, mask wearing, the whole thing. You know, we saw a lot of other illnesses go down, you know, flu rates were going down, all sorts of other stuff like that. But as things have opened up, we're starting to get back out there again, at least in children, we're seeing another respiratory virus take hold with them too. It's called uh, RSV So we're getting kind of hit twice, I guess, with children. They're getting the Delta variant, but this other respiratory virus is causing some problems as well. Yeah, and to be clear, it's not that kids are getting both COVID and this other virus, RSV, at the same time. It's more that some kids are getting COVID, and that is happening at the same time that a lot of kids are getting RSV because, as you mentioned, lockdowns are ending, kids are mingling more. So really... The reason this is consequential is because it means some of these pediatric hospitals are getting slammed by what they're calling this dual surge. And so it's not necessarily that the individual kids are coming down with both, but hospitals are facing both of these surges at the same time. You know, all of this really impacts uh, discussions on kids going back to school and teachers and mask wearing. We're seeing that fight play out across the country, school districts defying state orders against masks in certain areas. You know, this is why there's so much concern throughout all of this. And as I mentioned at the beginning, too, it is a numbers game. We're seeing cases rise. Of course, more children are going to get it. And unfortunately, even in those slim numbers, right, some of these kids do get pretty sick, just like adults would. Yeah, I mean, and I think it is important to really emphasize that Most kids do not get very sick. Even the kids that get pretty ill, most of them make full recoveries. So the risk to children is still pretty low. But of course, that's not much consolation if your kid is one of the few who does end up in the hospital. So these precautions are still really important. Emily Anthes, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. tenants to sign or the tenants had to get their landlords to sign on and some of the landlords were resistant because there were some strings attached. So it was a very complicated program and and the reality was just not, it didn't flow as easy as some of the other pandemic-related relief programs. Joining us now is Andrew Ackerman. 
reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 rent relief program. Uh, you know, we saw a, a couple of weeks back the CDC extend the moratorium on evictions, uh, uh, you know, so people can have some relief there. But there was a plan put in place to provide tenants and landlords some financial assistance throughout all of this. Uh, the Congress appropriated about $46.6 billion. As of June 30th, only $3 billion had been distributed and they think maybe another $2 billion in July. So about $5 billion of that $46 billion has been sent out. And we know people have been you know, struggling for some time. But the Treasury Department is in charge of this. But they're counting on over 450 state and local governments and agencies to distribute all that aid. So it, it, it can be pretty burdensome. So, Andrew, help us walk through some of this. What's going on with it? Congress basically set up this program in a way that is just highly decentralized. The idea is the government imposed a moratorium on evictions, and that was supposed to keep people who were harmed by the pandemic and lost their jobs or whatever and couldn't pay their rent. They would be able to stay in their homes, but to help out landlords who were squeezed by this long-term period of not getting paid, you'd have this money that would make the renters and the landlords whole. Um, and, but in the reality is that the program just was very complicated. Um, the U S had never really done anything like this before to help tenants. And so you were just kind of starting from scratch. The states all have their programs, but so do the local governments with populations above, I think, 200,000. So you had a bunch of localities that were trying to set this up and they didn't really have the background to do this. So everyone, I think, had the best intentions. It just takes a while to start a program like this from scratch to get the policies and procedures and documentation down. And then they were just inundated with applications in many cases. And so, you know, it took, took months for people to get the relief. They might have been rejected initially, so they had to resubmit their paperwork. In many cases, the landlords had to get the tenants to sign or the tenants had to get their landlords to sign on. And some of the landlords were resistant because there were some strings attached. So it was a very complicated program. And, and the reality was just not, it didn't flow as easy as some of the other pandemic related relief programs. Yeah. I mean, it had a slow start to begin with, but just talking about how, you know, how, how you mentioned a lot of these places had to start from scratch building this up. Texas, for example, they started with a, about a staff of 100, and they had to increase that to more than 1,500 people, including contractors, just so they can handle the workflow for all of this. I mean, that's how many people, the amount of staff needed to run this program. One of the challenges has been, you know, I think at, at the Treasury Department, they were sort of given this responsibility by Congress, and they have like, you know, they just came into office with very few people and they were trying to stand this up and, and they don't really have a lot of flexibility. The flexibility is under the law. They, you know, they can just kind of cajole people, the states and local governments to move faster. They've been trying to ease some of the guidelines around the program. They said early on, hey, you know, around documentation, you, you know, you can you can really just rely on the on self-attestation from the applicants, just as they say that they lost income. Some of these people are hourly workers. They may not have like the documentation that someone who's salaried with a W-2 has. They're saying, hey, you can just rely on their attestation that they suffered a hardship. And I think a lot of the local governments were wary of just accepting that. And it's just taken a while to get them comfortable with that, just because there's a legitimate concern that if you 
if you ease the documentation burden too much, you just allow people who will just take advantage of the program. They'll be basically fraud. There's always bad actors in all of this. And then later yeah. on, right, we'll get those reports that so much money was sent out to people that didn't deserve it. And, you know, it becomes another scandal later on. So, yeah, I mean, I totally understand having that level of documentation needed. But in these programs, as you mentioned, you know, speed is is so necessary as a part of this. You know, all that stuff burdens it down. And kind of how you we were saying, you know, Treasury is handling this, but this straddled two administrations. It started under the Trump administration and guidelines were starting to change under the Biden administration. And I think the concern was that the $47 billion was going to be a bridge to get us on the other side of the pandemic. And by the time this eviction moratorium lapsed, you know, people were supposed to get the bulk of this money and it was going to it was going to address most of what was needed. But now you're in this situation where the, the moratoriums lapse, the CDC has renewed it again. And that's a whole fairly complicated political dynamic where the Biden administration felt like they didn't have the authority to renew it, said as much. And then they got a bunch of flack from their le- from the left wing, the, the progressive side of the Democratic Party that said, you actually you have to do something. And so you've, they've renewed it now. The moratorium is now in place for two more months with the, the, the CDC says they retain the option to, to extend it beyond that period. But there's this litigation ongoing that could, you could see the courts strike it down. It's not clear what the courts will do, but there's this whole cloud over this thing. And so that's the litigation over this moratorium. In any case, the concern is that if, if more of the money doesn't get out the door, instead of becoming $47 billion of rental assistance, it becomes a massive homelessness uh, avoidance program of some kind. Andrew Ackerman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure thing. You're welcome. Have a nice afternoon. So I've just been told that Never Gonna Give You Up has been streamed a billion times on YouTube. That is mind-blowing. The world is a wonderful and beautiful place, and I am very lucky. Joining us now is Travis Andrews internet culture writer at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Travis. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about a a pretty fun milestone for Rick Astley and his 1987 hit, Never Gonna Give You Up, obviously from the Rick Rolling meme fame. Obviously, in his own right, right, he (laughs) is his own hit that he had, but it kind of took on a life of its own for countless people who had been Rick Rolled. At the end of July, the official version of his video surpassed 1 billion views on YouTube. It's only the fourth video from the 1980s to have done that. So it's a pretty big milestone for him and for the song and kind of for Rick Rolling in general. Uh, Travis, you wrote a little bit about the history. It's hard to nail down any history of any meme, but tell us a little bit about it, please. Absolutely, yeah. No, this is a, a really big milestone. And in fact, since then, there's been another 14 million views. I saw that. Uh, since then, which shows you how big this is. So yeah, like I, like I put in the article, it's, it's hard to trace any meme because people will lay claim to having created it and who knows who's actually telling the truth. But here's what we do now. So early on in around 2006, a guy named Eric Helwig called a local sports radio show and rather than talk, played the song. Uh, we, we know that's true. And then we also know in the next year, 2007, Christopher Poole, the guy who founded 4chan, uh, which is like an image message board, an anonymous uh, message board, he instituted this goofy word filter to change the word egg to duck. Why? No reason. Just goofy (laughs) internet 
stupidity. And so anytime you'd write the word egg, the word duck would appear. And so people would write egg roll and the word duck roll would appear. So naturally, this being the internet, someone then was like, duck roll, let me take a picture of a duck and Photoshop some wheels on it and then uh, hide that behind the link. So someone clicks on a link, they're expecting to see Barry Sanders' greatest plays, and then instead what pops up is this picture of a duck on wheels. So then, uh, a little later that year, a guy named Sean Cotter, who was serving uh, in Korea in the Air Force, he was bored, I suppose, and the trailer for Grand Theft Auto 4, the video game, came out. It was really this highly anticipated trailer, and it crashed. Uh, no, one could, no one could see it. So he posted on to 4chan, oh, here's another link to the GTA 4 trailer, and this one works. And when people clicked it, he just sent them to the music video for Never Gonna Give You Up. At the time, he says he was just happened to be downloading hit songs from 1987, the year he was born. And that one was just playing when he made the thing up. So he decided to use that song. He thought it was funny and, you know, might might draw people in. And, and then, boom, it was born. People were, were not happy at first, but then everyone started using it. And uh, from there, it, it just spread and spread and spread. Rick Astley has spoken a lot about this. You know, he said he wanted to stay away from it, but he kind of got into it anyways. He did a bunch of appearances with the song. He boiled it down to money, even saying, hey, I'm, I'm not being crude. I get offered a lot of money just to do Rickroll people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who can really blame him? That particular quote came after probably his biggest appearance as, as a real life Rickroll. So this whole thing blew up so big, people started doing it offline and kind of coming up with new creative ways to do it. For example, when the uh, Red Sox were playing uh, in uh, San Diego, the stadium pretended to play Sweet Caroline, which is like the Red Sox Fenway Park anthem. And then like about a minute in the song, they cut off and it's, you know, Rick Astley singing. So it went offline and Astley himself in 2008 popped out of a Cartoon Network show themed float in the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Day Parade and started doing this song and later said that he made a, a lot of money doing that, which, you know, fair play to him, man. If, <laughs> if you can, you know, years later, take this hit song you had and uh, keep milking it and everyone's having a good time, why not do it? I wanted to ask you also, because it's somewhere in your article, I suggest people read it because it, it's pretty fun. You Rick rolled me. I fell for it, you know, right in the most <laughs> obvious spot. I didn't think it was going to happen. And I did. But uh, I saw on your Twitter page that a lot of people have since been rickrolling you all over the place since you wrote this. Yeah, no, it seems like the perfect cycle of things. I woke up this morning, we published the article at 6 a.m., and I woke up and had a couple emails from readers, as, as you usually do when you publish a story. And groggy-eyed, I'm just like, oh, I wonder what this link is. And don't tell our cybersecurity team. So we're supposed to check, like I put in the article, every <laughs> link. I'm never really worried about being hacked, more of just being Rickrolled. And sure enough, like three times this morning, I'm watching Rick Astley, and I'm like, I don't know what I expected, <laughs> especially since I did it to people in the article. Travis Andrews, internet culture writer at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.